Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. You'll find all the Twitch shows on your Roku box, Android, and BlackBerry phones at all Yahoo Widget TVs powered by Mediafly. For more information, visit twit.tv slash Mediafly. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 266, recorded September 15th, 2010. Inside OAuth. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMeeting. Face-to-face meetings are sometimes important, but they can be a hassle and a waste of money. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash Security Now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all your security needs. Privacy 2, Steve Gibson is here. He is from GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. That's where he works to save us from ourselves. Hello, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. We have a great subject today. I'm really excited about this one. Yeah, an important subject. Um, it's it's a... It, well, <laughs> it, it's, it's an evolving devolving protocol which addresses a very important need for the internet and all of us the protocol is known as oauth it was originally named open auth but it turns out there was a name collision somebody else had something called i think it might have been aol had something called open auth so the original authors shortened it to just oauth but it means open auth and the the needed addresses is is to allow a means for an agent of some sort to act on your behalf with an internet service um, without needing to have or know your credentials. That is... Um, well, for example, the way I first encountered it, I think, was uh, as I was playing with Twitter, and I think it might have been the Bitly service, which is a um, a link shortening service. I went over to Bitly and wanted to set up an account, and with Bitly, it doesn't just shorten the links. It You're able to put your whole message in there, and when you paste in a big link, it goes, whoa, that won't fit in you know, in the 140 characters that you have for a text message. So it scrunches it down. And and the point is that it will then post it on your behalf. Well, in order for it to do that, it has to have access to some aspects of your Twitter account. Now, in if we didn't have a means to achieve this, when you set up an account with Bitly it would have to ask you for your username and password so that it could literally log in as you and then act on your behalf. The problem is you really don't want to give your username and password out to 
all of the growing number of things that you that you want to have able to act on your behalf in a way like this. And you can imagine, you know, printing services, you might have all your photos on, over on Flickr, but then there's something, there's some other facility that you want to give limited controlled access to resources that are up in the cloud, which you have access to, but you don't want them to just, you don't want to be keep giving out your username and password for all these different things. So um, what happened with, in the case with Bitly, as I, as I recall, is it said, okay, I need your authorization. We, Bitly people, need your authorization with Twitter in order to be able to post on your behalf. So what happened was I bounced over to Twitter. And it was like, oh, now I'm at Twitter. And I, you know, sure enough, SSL connection, green bar, everything all happy. And Twitter is saying to me, hi there. Um, apparently, you're considering giving Bitly, the Bitly service, access of some sort to your Twitter account. If you authorize this, then click here. Now, had I not already been logged into Twitter, then I would have had to give Twitter my Twitter username and password to first authenticate with Twitter, then to say to Twitter, yes, it's my intention to give Bitly access to post on my behalf. And so I, I said, yes, I clicked the yes button. I authorized this. And that bounced me back to Bitly that was now all happy and had now the ability to do this. So today's podcast is the protocol that makes this possible, which is had a bit of a checkered past. Um, it's got some problems. Um, a guy named Ryan Paul posted at the beginning of this month in Ars Technica a rather scathing attack on OAuth, uh, talking about compromising Twitter's use of it, uh, which is really not what he did. But there's, there's a lot of complexity to it. It's interesting. And that's our topic for today. It's interesting and very important, and a lot of companies are using it now, including, as you mentioned, Bitly, but also Twitter itself, uh, just recently turned off any other way of authentication with Twitter. You, Precisely. And, and, and rightly so. I mean, if you want to use a third-party program to access Twitter, giving it your Twitter credentials should feel bad, should feel wrong. Yes, all of our <laughs> listeners have certainly been well enough educated by now. And can consider also the, the liability of that. That is, if you've given 10 different applications or other services or websites or something, your username and password. Now, what happens if you regret, if you make a mistake with one of them? So the only recourse you have, there's no way to revoke that. The only recourse you have is to change your, you go over to Twitter, for example, if this was the one that you'd been handing out, change your password. But in the process of doing that, you break all of the other ones, all the other services that you've given your that now have an old password, so you've got to go now through all of them and and update them. So, as you say, Leo, I mean this is this is an important thing. This is this is big news for the internet and and OAuth's promise is, which it's having trouble fulfilling for mm. reasons we're going to address. Mm. Its promise is that it will. It will create a common mode for doing this. I mean, Facebook has had their own protocol. 
um, a friend feed has had one. So you know, Facebook Connect is not OAuth. That's something else. Correct. Um, and one of the problems is that this sort of started slowly. Nobody really took it seriously. So it didn't have many people involved. Then more people got involved. Well, they had, they already had their way of doing it. So they kind of wanted to bring some of theirs along with it. Mm. And they st- stuck it all in there. And it ended up just being a mess. So... Um, it's, but we're going to cover that in detail, explain how this works, how they've made it secure, um, some of the problems that have been encountered and, and so forth. But yes, it's very, very important. I mean, the, the idea of being able to delegate, um, being able to delegate to a third party controlled access to stuff of yours that's on the net. I mean, that's the future. There's just no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah. Well, we need it to work. So I want to find out why it doesn't work. And we'll do that in just a little bit. But uh, also, as always, we've got your security mm-hmm. updates. And, uh, oh, and, you know, we've had a busy time. A couple, <laughs> oh, well, we've had a couple very quiet weeks where I've said, hey, guess what? Nothing right. happened. Right. Well, as it turns out, um, every a whole bunch of stuff happened probably as we were we, we were recording last week's podcast i mean like right then stuff was going on and so and then a lot since so uh we've got we've got updates and we've got news and uh and so forth we'll get so, to those uh, let me let me get to our commercial why don't i okay. real quickly and then we can really dig into the meat of the matter uh, we're Perfect. brought to you today by the f- great folks at citrix of course who do go to meeting which is a really fantastic program we talk about citrix all the time uh basically citrix uh, came along hmm, must be Almost 20 years ago, I'm trying to think, uh, Ed Iacobucci were, was on the OS2 team for IBM, was uh, was kind of sent to Microsoft, sent to Redmond to help them with Windows NT, I'm, I want to say 3.5, and uh, he worked on NT, the, the Microsoft put a lot into OS2, that must be almost 20 years ago now. And at the time, Ed learned an awful lot, in fact, I would say Ed knew more about how NT worked than anybody at Microsoft, he wrote a lot of the kernel himself. Started Citrix because he knew how to do remote access. Of course, Microsoft has licensed their technology for years as part of their remote access solution. Citrix makes a very heavy-duty enterprise remote access solution, Citrix server, but they also do consumer products for you that make it really easy. You don't have to be an IT pro to use. We've talked about go to my PC, go to assist, uh, um, and, of course, go to meeting. Go to meeting is designed to make it easy to meet. This might have been their first uh, real big consumer product. Certainly, uh, online meeting has been a hot topic for some time. But the problem with it is it's been very difficult to use. It hasn't been cross-platform. There's a lot of things wrong <laughs> with other meeting software. And go to meeting just solves all those problems. It uses NAT traversal, so you never have to worry about firewall configuration. Uh, it is very easy and quick to install. I think it's in Java. So it, you, you literally, you, if you go right now to gotomeeting.com slash security now, you will have that software installed within a minute. Depends on your connection, but it really, it's, I say a minute, it really is about 20 seconds. Now, anytime you want to have an online meeting, you can. You don't have to meet face-to-face. You don't have to travel. You don't have to have boring conference calls. You just fire up GoToMeeting. You can do it ahead of time even. Send them an invitation. It, it hooks into Outlook and other programs, so it's very easy to send an invitation. They click a link. They don't have to have it installed and set it ahead of time. That's important if, if it's a sales meeting. You don't want your clients to have to jump through hoops to meet with you. Uh, they just click the link, and you know what? They love it. 
all of a sudden they're seeing your PowerPoint or your keynote presentation. You can work together on spreadsheets and other documents. You can collaborate. You can demonstrate. You can take them on a tour of the website. Whatever it is you need to do to show them. And they can do the reverse to you. You can start the meeting. And they can say, well, let me show you what's on my desktop. It is so fast, so easy. I want you to try it free for 30 days. One low, flat monthly rate for as many meetings as you want, as long as you want. It includes a free teleconferencing as well. There's a great free iPad app. Uh, go to meeting.com slash security now. Try it today for 30 days, absolutely free, and then you tell me what you think. We thank the folks at Citrix for such great software and making it easier to do business. Go to meeting.com. Okay, Steve Arino. Bunch of updates, I guess. Well, of course, we are past the second Tuesday of the month, mm-hmm. which happened um, a day or two ago, depending upon when you're listening to this. So uh, the, this most recent Tuesday was that one. Microsoft uh, dumped a bunch of updates on us, not surprisingly, as they typically do. Four of the, well, a total of nine, four were rated critical and five are rated just important. Um, there's nothing... Too earth-shattering, except that we found out that there had already been a a botnet which was using one that was not previously known publicly, uh, which surprised some security researchers. Uh, there's a vulnerability in Microsoft's print spooler service, which could allow remote code execution, which had been publicly disclosed, um, and... Uh, it turns out that if you send a specially formed printer request to the file and printer sharing share, you're able to take over the machine remotely, which was which was the hook that a it turns out a relatively well known botnet was using, unbeknownst to anyone. There's also a vulnerability in the MPEG4 codec, which can allow remote code execution. That one had been privately reported. There's a problem with the Unicode scripts processor. Uh, same thing, remote code execution uh, in the way they handle open type. And in Microsoft Outlook is also has a remote code execution problem. So that's all been patched, those four critical problems. And then there's five that Microsoft just rates as important as opposed to critical uh, scattered through the uh, windows in nowhere in particular. So uh, just as usual... Uh, make sure that you're updating Windows. I found that um, uh, I only had one, actually Silverlight, uh, which wasn't among them, was wanting to be updated since I haven't yet moved myself to SP3. I've got to tackle that and get that done. And it's it's funny, I, I should mention how many listeners uh, send me helpful hints about updating to Service Pack 3. It's not that my system won't. I have updated to Service Pack 3, but some it did some strange things uh, with the start menu, I recall. And when I backed out of it, everything got okay again. So I ought to just try it again. I'll make an image and, you know, as for safety's sake and then see if I can be there because I would like to stay on the update train uh, along with all of our listeners. Um, Adobe's back in the doghouse once again. Two, count them, two new zero-day vulnerabilities um, one was one that occurred exactly a week ago as we were recording this podcast on September 8th um, is a, a new problem in Reader and Acrobat. Um, there are no fixes for this. This is a, um, a zero-day 
exploit that was first seen in the wild. It's in the cooltype.dll, which we've had problems with before. So another problem there. It's called the Sing Unique Name Buffer Overflow Vulnerability. Adobe talks about it on their site. Um, they are going to attempt to push out a fix for this one week early. The normally scheduled quarterly update for Adobe stuff was going to was scheduled for October twelfth, which was the the second Tuesday in October. They they do second Tuesday of the month, but instead of unlike Microsoft that does it every month, they do it every they only do it quarterly, so every, every third month. But they're because this is being actively exploited, they're going to do any updates, including something to fix this the week earlier. They're, they're just, they're, we don't have a date yet. They're just saying the week of October 4th. And oddly enough, um, Microsoft has a toolkit whose name I just love. Um, it's the Enhanced Mitigation Experience. <laughs> Everything's toolkit. an experience for Microsoft. Who names, who names these things? <laughs> Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> so we have a, we have, we're Microsoft and we have a, Operating system that we can't get quite right. It's got bugs and flaws and vulnerabilities and exploits happening all the time. But we want we want to mitigate those. So we're going to come out with the enhanced mitigation experience toolkit. <laughs> Sounds like a Disneyland to, ride. Doesn't it? <laughs> and this will so you know, so th- because we want to mitigate yes. the 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 pain of the experience of using the operating system. So this is the EMET, Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit. Now at version 2.0, uh, actually just recently at 2.0.0.1, it was released to fix bugs in the first 2.0 version. So I guess that would be the mitigation experience experience. They're, you know... <laughs> it's kind of meta, where, but... <laughs> where, they, where they fix those, yeah. And so... It turns out that this exploit in the cool type DLL in Adobe's product, it's a so-called ROP, a return-oriented programming bug. We've talked about this in the past. The idea being that rather than attempting to execute code in the data area, which DEP, data execution prevention, will block which is now, of course, turned on in the later operating systems that are affected by this. Instead, clever programmers arrange to to loop through the ends of existing code in order to achieve their goals. So it's called return-oriented programming because you you return into existing code, get it to do something, then it comes back to you, then you jump somewhere else to some other existing code, basically using code that other people wrote at known locations in order to do your dirty work. Well, the known locations is the key, which is why Microsoft introduced ASLR, address space layout randomization which which causes code and windows to to be relocated to to essentially be loaded into random or semi-random locations and that breaks return oriented programming the problem is that the one vulnerable actually I think it's two out of many DLLs that are in Acrobat 
Um, and it's got a funny name. It's not meant for prime time. Um, it's ICUCNV36.dll. That's one of two that does not have ASLR enabled. So that particular DLL is always at a fixed location, and it's the the exploit that occurred in in Acrobat in the cool type DLL. It ends up being used to execute code in this ICUCNV36.dll, which is always loaded at the fixed location. Well, what the Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit from Microsoft allows you to do is to override this this non-enabling of ASLR and force DLLs that always sort of just don't have it just don't have ASLR enabled force them to be loaded at different locations and what I, I got a kick out of it because Adobe links to this on Microsoft's site Microsoft has a page where you land from Adobe is saying okay we're going to help you out with this buffer overflow vulnerability now I should tell people or our listeners I'm not doing this and I'm not sure I would recommend anyone do it. First of all, the Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit version 2.0.0.0.1 brings a lot of baggage with it. You have to have .NET installed, and it just seems like a heavyweight thing to do unless you're already using it and have it installed in order just to protect Acrobat for a few weeks until you know October the week of October 4th when they fix this problem um, but on their page quoting from their page it says in order to enable EMET that's the enhanced mitigation experience toolkit for Adobe Reader and Acrobat you have to install EMET and run the following simple command line as an administrator now I looked at it I thought okay wait a minute Simple command line, E-M-E-T underscore C-O-N-F dot E-X-E space dash dash add double quote C colon backslash program space files space open parens x86 close parens slash Adobe slash reader space 9.0 slash reader slash A-C-R-O-R-D 32 dot E-X-E. It's that easy. Um, so I can remember that. I got I got it written yeah. down. You got it. So uh, if you have the Enhanced Mitigation Experience Toolkit already installed, then I would say, okay, go for it. Protect yourself from this by forcing this DLL to load in different locations, which will protect you until Adobe fixes this problem sometime in the week of October 4th. Otherwise, I would say, eh, um, it's being used in targeted attacks. Um, so standard caution with PDFs is not to open PDFs coming in email. And um, I would say not open them unless it's from a very trusted source. Now, there is an interesting new solution for the whole PDF problem, which I've run across, but it didn't seem to work for me. And I haven't figured out why yet. But there is a new Firefox add-on called gpdf and what's clever about it is if you click on a link in what when you're browsing around 
Firefox uses the Google Viewer to open the PDF. So instead of running, instead of opening the PDF on your system, which is always hair-raising and frightening and, and prone to exploitation, Firefox opens it full screen in the Google Viewer. So, which, which means it's not being rendered on your system. It's being rendered, you know, within this Google Viewer system and presented to you on your browser, which protects you from PDF exploits. But for me, it didn't work. Um, so so um, I'm going to track that down because it seems like a, a useful thing to do um, as soon as I figure out how to make it go. But it's called GPDF for anybody who's interested uh, for Firefox. Very good. And the, that was the first of and the longest winded uh, zero day <laughs> vulnerability. The second one. Oh, really? There's more than one. Wow. Oh, geez. Yes. Two, two zero day vulnerabilities in one in the span right. of one podcast. Right. Uh, yeah. This one is with Flash Player. Uh, it's a critical vulnerability in Adobe's Flash Player. Um, 10.1.82.76 and earlier. Um, it affects pretty much everything. Windows, Mac, Linux, Solaris, and the Flash Player, which is actually a different version, 10.1.92.10 for Android. Um, it also affects Reader. Apparently, Reader can be used to invoke this under Windows, Mac, and Unix. Uh, 9.4, I'm sorry, 9.3.4 and Acrobat 9.3.4, same version and earlier for Windows and Mac. It's being actively exploited in the wild and they are saying we have to wait till September 27th. So we're going to get a fix sooner than that, but they're saying the week of September 27th. So that's week after next, we should have a fix for that. So, you know, not been a good week for uh, Adobe. Mm. Not that they actually they have, have a good week. They haven't had often. a good week in a long time. Yeah, months. they really. <laughs> boy, I mean, and in fact, what I'm reading out in the security world is people just shaking their heads. I mean, really feeling like Adobe's becoming a laughing stock security wise. <laughs> it's just, I mean, this is a problem when for a huge length of time you are writing code sort of casually without an eye toward security and you build this massive code base which people then you know the bad guys then turn their attention to and start looking for problems mm -hmm. with well i mean it, it, there's it's just riddled clearly it's just riddled with problems because these with, are not all related these are all different issues yeah they're just different mistakes that adobe makes and it, it's they're they're things that work but they only work when you give them really good code. You, if you give the the their their rendering technology, basically they're rendering PDFs or they're rendering flash files. So that means that they basically they have interpreters that they've written, which are interpreting the PDF content and interpreting the flash data. And as long as you give them valid PDFs and flash files to interpret. They work fine. So Adobe says right. ship it. Right. You know, and, and, and everyone's got them on their machines and everyone's happy. It turns out, though, that these things are, they were never written 
to be defensive. They were just written to work. So they're not defending themselves you know, um, successfully from, from bad guys who say, oh, look, you know, this thing didn't check for negative numbers. So let's give it a negative number when it right. only expects positive ones and see, oh, look, that allows us to reach backwards through the buffer rather than forwards the way it was meant. But the code didn't check for negative because, you know, no one ever expected a negative number. But if we give it a negative number, then look, it lets us go backwards behind the buffer and let's figure out what we can do. Oh, look, we're able to execute it, you know, code it wasn't meant to be executed if we give it a negative number. So it's that kind of thing. I mean, and imagine, I mean, you to have created a huge code base. I mean, I mean, these things are not small anymore. These are tens of megabytes of of executables and DLLs because, of course, Adobe has just bloated this thing, you know, their their whole suite as they've tried to add features and 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 you know new bells and whistles in order to 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 further their cause their own commercial interests so we end up with this with mistakes throughout this huge amount of code and i'm sure adobe obviously wishes that they didn't have any mistakes mm. but what they've got is so big i don't know if they're ever going to be able to fix it wow. and now it's just a it's a you know it's an extravaganza of exploit so a bonanza a bonanza so Firefox had an update also um, to 3.6.9. A big bunch of vulnerability fixes, about 14 were listed in the uh, CVE, the Common Vulnerabilities and Exploits Database, and Mozilla had the same number, 14, one for one, matching those. Um, and just I'll quote briefly from the SANS security newsletter that had a nice summary they wrote, Mozilla has released patches for multiple vulnerabilities in Firefox. Some of these vulnerabilities may be exploitable for code execution. Potentially serious vulnerabilities include multiple memory corruption vulnerabilities in the browser engine, a heat-based buffer overflow in Firefox's code handling of HTML frame set elements, an invalid pointer in plugin handling code, a buffer overflow in the code responsible for transforming text runs, a use-after-free vulnerability in the code for handling XUL tree structures, a memory corruption vulnerability in the code handling XUL tree objects, a memory corruption vulnerability in the code handling of NS tree content view, a memory corruption vulnerability in the code used to normalize documents, a memory corruption vulnerability in font handling code on Macintosh systems. Note that all these problems require an attacker to entice the target to view a malicious web page, which actually is not much of a caveat because that's how all these things happen these days. You click on a link in mail, you go to a web page, and that's not good for you. So we want to make sure everybody's updated to 3.6.9. Chrome had a... One of its standard little updates up to 6.0.472.53. They're as tight-lipped as always about what was fixed. So all they said was multiple remote code execution vulnerabilities were fixed in that. And even Apple's iOS 4 had 24 problems fixed. Wow. Most of which, yeah, I looked at the list over on Apple's site. It just it was scrolled on and on and on. Most of them were things that resided over in WebKit. So these were WebKit 
mislocated problems, which um, Apple fixed. Presumably patched in the open source stuff, but uh, Apple has to do it on their own. So yeah, if you know, it's exactly. funny. I have a funny reaction when I see a long list of patches. That makes me happy. It's like, well, there's some things that are fixed. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I just presume there's bugs. So uh, now, you know, IE9 came out uh, today in its first public beta. Oh, and really does look nice. Good. Um, the, the news is that IE9 is way fast. Apparently, it is really fast, economically designed, more standards compliant, and let's just hope. <laughs> I mean, we know what new means yeah. in security. New is never good. New is just a whole bunch of new problems. <laughs> Unless uh, so. you're like Adobe and you take that all ugly code base and you start from scratch, maybe uh, with some eye to security. I mean, that's, that sounds like what they should be really doing with, with their code base. Yeah, I don't know over. what else. I mean, I have to say again, as I as I, whenever I'm assembling all of this for the podcast, I, I find myself just shaking my head, thinking, you know, are the fundamental architecture of our systems is broken. Yeah, it's. I mean, the idea that systems can be compromised by one program's misbehavior. I mean, that's that's fundamentally broken. We need a a system that is inherently sandboxed, a system, I mean, an operating system where, ev where no process is able to break out of a sandbox. And, and all, if that could be created correctly, then we, our problems would go away. I mean, it's just that we don't have that today. Someday we're going to have that. That's the only way we're going to solve this. Because every time something is created that's new, it's going to be right back to, to square zero. I mean, I guarantee you, mark my words, Leo, we're going to be talking about IE9 bugs coming out of our ears. I mean, I'm glad there's a better IE, that it's more standards compliant, that it's, that it's faster, that it's going to, you know, that Microsoft has put an IE team back together again because they disbanded it pretty much after IE6. They said, okay, well, now we're, we're just going to maintain this. <laughs> we finished. We wrote the perfect browser. We'll never yeah. have to fix this. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I, I'm glad for that. But it's it's going to be bloody. There's just no yeah. way around it. It's a bunch of new code. There'll, there'll be mistakes in it. Sorry. So, in security news, I mentioned a couple times this uh, botnet, which was using a previously unknown security hole. Well, it turns out that the bad guys are apparently even further ahead of us than we knew. We've talked about the, the, the Stuxnet, S-T-U-X-N-E-T, -E the Stuxnet worm before, because that was the one which surprised us with back in July with the that the shell remote code exploit, the .lnk, remember the shell shortcut, .lnk, that's the one that was spreading um, through these SCADA systems. Uh, SCADA, S-C-A-D-A, is the acronym for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition, which is, is used, unfortunately, in high um, automation factories and plants like nuclear reactors and in in other you know major um like uh, power control power generating factories and and things uh, it, it's sort of like the underlying technology for for doing factory and, and large plant automation 
And for whatever reason, this Stuxnet worm had, it was like going after these SCADA systems. And what was found was that unfortunately, the the way SCADA's architecture was set up, they had hard-coded passwords in these systems, which was was known to this worm, the Stuxnet worm, which was using the hard-coded passwords for its own purposes. So what Kaspersky Labs folks recently discovered was that not only could it spread using this shell shortcut vulnerability, this .lnk vulnerability, but it was it was also able to spread using that previously unknown printer sharing vulnerability that Microsoft just patched two days ago and no one knew about it, but except this worm knew about it and it was using it. And what's also creepy is that there they found as they analyzed this worm that there was the ability for it to use a vulnerability which has been known for more than two years. It was back in 2008, there, were, there was a vulnerability. And the, the, what was interesting is that if the worm used that in corporate networks, that is, this worm was not only, it, it, it's a Windows-based worm, but it's targeted at these SCADA systems because unfortunately, Windows is the interface to these supervisory control and data acquisition systems. So Windows was sort of like the, 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 the door into these SCADA systems. But the worm was smart enough to know if it was on a corporate network that would probably sense its attempt to use this 08 exploit. And if it sensed that, it would not use it. It only used it if it could tell that through its own analysis that it was on an older network like one of these SCADA networks that wouldn't that would probably be vulnerable to that and wouldn't be updated and, and able to sense that, that it was doing that. So um, Siemens, that is the, is the manufacturer of this particular brand of SCADA systems, has said that at least 14 operational plants located in the UK, in North America, and Korea, and also with, the, with by far the largest number of infections located um, in plants in Iran, had been infected. And um, Joe Weiss, who's a managing partner at Applied Control Systems, ACS in Cupertino, that's a major supplier of this kind of automated control technology, has, has said that um, as troubling as the Stuxnet worm has been for Windows, the real target appears, as I was saying, to be these SCADA control systems, which are interfaced to Windows, and that's their way in. Symantec reported that this Stuxnet has the ability to take advantage of the programming software to also upload its own code into the, the what are called PLCs, the, the Programmable Logic Controllers, in industrial control systems that... Um, are typically monitored by the SCADA systems. In addition, said Symantec, Stuxnet hides the, its own code blocks so that when a programmer using an infected machine tries to view all the code blocks on this PLC, not even a Windows thing, this is so this is crossing into, out of Windows, into um, 
uh, into equipment automation systems, they will not see the code injected by Stuxnet. Thus, this Stuxnet isn't just a rootkit that hides itself on Windows, as we know it does, but is the first publicly known rootkit that's able to hide injected code located on these programmable logic controllers, these PLC systems. And finally, Joe Weiss, this guy at at ACS, was quoted saying, the mechanism that the Stuxnet worm uses to install the Siemens payload um, comes at the very end, which means that is the end of what the worm is doing, which means this isn't a Siemens problem and and that they could have substituted GE, Rockwell, or any other of the of uh, manufacturers' PLCs as the target of the worm. And he says at least one aspect of what Stuxnet does is take control of the process and be able to, for example, whatever the programmer wanted, opening and closing valves in the plant, turning pumps on and off, or speeding up a motor or slowing one down. He says this has potentially devastating consequences and there needs to be a lot more attention focused on it. So it's frightening stuff, Leo. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's, you know, it's getting out into the real world, not just messing with people's email, but now, now using Windows as the, as the entry point to get to process control systems and, you know, muck around with pulling the reactor core out of things. You know, I think this might be a new uh, surface, attack surface, because uh, I'm sure these embedded systems and these specialized systems like this are not anywhere near as as tested and, and tried and true. Maybe no. they are. I don't know. It just seems no. like... I, I, uh, you know, from, from from my exposure to them, they're much simpler. Yeah. They're much less sophisticated. They're much simpler. And they, they don't have nearly, you know, the... the well, for example, there's no sort of anti-malware, anti-virus technology for them. They they they're very simple-minded, and so it's it's entirely feasible that something could load code in and just sort of link itself out of the file system very easily, and just and then not be be in there running, but not seen. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> um, I did run across. An interesting add-on for Firefox that does work for me that I wanted to mention uh, sort of under my errata in tips. It's called Better Privacy. And I ran across it a couple weeks ago, and I've been using it for a couple weeks and can now recommend it. So it's Better Privacy for Firefox. What it does is deal with these super cookies that we've talked about, the LSO, the local shared object cookies, which, for example, Flash installs. The first time I ran it, it it said, when I was shutting down Firefox, it said, oh, you have 142 super cookies installed. (laughs) How would you like me to delete those? Well, it surprised me because I know I had gone over to um, the... um, Adobe's site, which is still Macromedia, is where this thing is configured, and turned them off. But they turned themselves what? back on. Again. Oh, yeah, because we've talked before about turning off Flash cookies. Yes. And, wow. And then, and then to just today, when I was restarting Firefox, actually to install this GPDF thing that I talked about, there were 14 more. 
And I thought, wait a minute, I'm sure I had these disabled. So I went back over to to the um, flash configuration and just using that UI, I disabled these again. I went through the various tabs, noting that there were more of them now than there used to be. And when I went back to the first tab where I turned it off, it was already turned on again. So I'm really annoyed by this. I don't know. I haven't tracked down what's going on, but I'll I'll just tell people, if you think you've turned this off, you know, check back the next day and see if yeah. it stays off because something is turning it back on. Um, and so if nothing else, this better privacy add-on for Firefox when you, I mean, it's really, it's not about browser cookies at all. It's just sort of a nice place for this little, this little piece of code to live such that when you're shutting down Firefox, it will, on the way out, it will delete these local shared objects. And then what that does is that prevents your razor, your regular browser cookies from being reconstituted next time, you know, you bring up a page for some advertising site that is deliberately using the flash cookies to reconstitute your browser cookies behind your back which is you know the the way wow. this super tracking happens and this uh, and this LSO program will find all flash cookies all all of these super cookies um, I know that it does it for flash and it, it sure found 142 That's for a me lot of them. wow yeah so uh, do we now change our recommendation that uh, you, you turn off the cookies using uh, flash's own tools you you might want yeah. to find a third party tool to check. Yeah, it's a good point. Um it's uh that that's I haven't found one yet, but uh I'm very disappointed that just using the 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 tool that you're directed to for managing flash cookies. Right. This is Adobe's own recommendation is to use that tool. Yes, and it seems to be not working right mm. in a way that's not in not in the user's best interests. Yeah. Uh huh, and yeah. you think it's you think this is a flaw in Flash or which was certainly there's none of those. Well, or is I, yeah. it or is it uh, is this, I mean, what's going on here? I don't know because the 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 tab there's like there's now about six or seven tabs, and the second tab is the one where you say, "Do not store anything on," "Don't ask me again," and disable. Right, and I did that. Then I, I marched through all the tabs, uh, to see, one after the other, to see if there was anything else I wanted to turn off. And I, you know, there were various things I deleted and, and turned off. And then by coincidence, I just sort of went back to the second tab again, and it had turned itself back on. So it's like, oh, oh I hate okay. that one. This is not good. That's yeah. terrible. Yeah. All right, let's uh, let's. Uh, do you have a spin right story before? Just we... a very quick little okay. mention from a listener of ours, Jeff Cruz. Who wrote? I loved his little comment. It, it just started off. Spinrite works! Exclamation point. And I thought, well, yeah, Jeff, I got uh, to tell you. <laughs> he said, "I've been listening to the steady testimonials on the Security Now podcast. I bought Spinrite six, and a couple of months later, I thought I, thought, I like that because he bought it just to support us, and because he wanted to have it ready if he had a problem. So he said, and a couple of months later, my home computer would not boot up XP in safe mode or any other mode." I ran Spinrite 6 on level 2, recovery, and in 60 minutes, it had marked one sector as not fully recoverable, but repaired the rest. I rebooted my computer, and XP then booted. XP ran its special check disk on its own and has been working fine ever since for over a week now. 
I, it would have taken hours to reload, to reload all my software and re- reconfigure everything again. So thanks, Steve, for saving a lot of time and lost data. And thank you, Jeff, for the report. Yay. Yay. All right. Now, I know a lot of people have tuned in because I tweeted about this, and I think there's a lot of interest in this. In particular, I mean, OAuth is such an important part of uh, the Internet these days. It's used by almost every site for authentication. Yes. And I think it'd be great to know how it works and also what the potential problems are. Well, yes. I, my sense is they're getting smoothed out. It, it had a bit of a rough start. It started back in 06. And, and just to back up a little bit to, to recap a little of what, of what we were saying at the top of the show. The, the issue is that, that users want a means, well, actually need a means these days to allow other websites and maybe even desktop applications to act on their behalf. So, for example, you might have all of your photos located on, on you know, some photo sharing site like Flickr, and you might want to use a printing service, to, to allow a printing service to gain access to some photos that are over there for 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 printing them out. So rather than you being the middleman, you just want to, you know, you want to use direct bandwidth for for one site to have access to the other. Well, in order for that to happen, the the printing service might need well, it needs authentication. It needs authorization to have access to those files. So what you what we would have once done would have been to, unfortunately, to give the printing service your username and password. But that makes everyone uncomfortable these days, as well it should. Because, as we mentioned before, if you did this a lot, then there's no means for revoking those privileges that you've given to just one of the services to whom you've given your username and password. You'd have to change your password, which then breaks all the authorization that you've given, and then you've got to go back and, and fix it all. So what we needed was, oh, and for some reason, this is called the password anti-pattern. I ran across that phrase a number of times while I was pulling things together and doing the research, and it doesn't have any particular meaning for me, but password anti-pattern is, is the, the standard term used for, for giving your username and password for one service to a different service when you want that second service to have access to the first. So, you know, that's the problem that we're solving here. And notice also that if you had a service where you authenticated um, using one-time passwords, then, then there's no way you can give, a, even if you wanted to, you could give a a a, a a varying one-time password to some other service because you know the, as soon as you use it, it's it's no longer valid again. So so we needed some way to solve this problem. So um, back in 06, about four years ago, there sort of a, a, a loosely confederated group began to to try to figure out how to make this work. So. When and 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 a perfect example, Leo, of of third parties that want access. I, um, I I looked at my own 
Twitter account for SGGRC. Oh, my I bet you have. Tw- uh, if you're like me, you have dozens of, yes, of them. Yes. I had Seismic Desktop, yep. Bitly, yep. Seismic Web, yep. TwitLonger, <laughs> something called Manage Flitter that I didn't even know. I was like, what's that? <laughs> you know, that I'd given permission to right. at some point. Twitterific, the Visitor Widget, which I, again, it's like, huh? And, and that was part of Twitter counter that I did go look at a couple weeks ago. Tweet deck, Twitter later, twit pick, <laughs> and Twitter for BlackBerry. You really did get into Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So, so those are all things that th- th- those are others, you know, third party agents of various sorts that I've given that I've, that I've permitted to access my Twitter account. Right. Okay. So how does this work? Um, the user's experience is pretty nice from a standpoint of using a web browser. You're you're at a site which wants you're at a site that wants access to some resources elsewhere on the net. So it bounces you from what 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 the user sees with their web browser is they get bounced over to this the the site that that you're wanting to provide permission for, you agree to do that, and you're taken back. I mean, so it's it's seamless and nice from from a user's experience. So let's talk about from a security protocol, from a security standpoint, how that works. Um, th- we have to name the endpoints first of all. The client is the service that wants access. So, for example, the client would be the photo printing site in the examples that I've used that wants access to resources on the server. So, so the server would be like, like Flickr or would be, for example, Twitter that has the, that has the services or resources or whatever which we're wanting to provide the client service access to. And then we have the user who who has the credentials, who is the one who controls the resources on the server side. So the, the server makes it known that they support OAuth. That is, they're an OAuth provider, meaning that that if you have if you if the client supports OAuth, then it's possible for there to be this exchange of of credentials and authentication. Now, prior to this, the the reason OAuth is good is that before there was a standard that people could agree upon. There was still this problem that is the, this need to, um, and for, in fact, formally you would call it secure delegated access to protected resources. Secure delegated access to protected resources. That's sort of what the problem we're trying to solve is. We want to we want to we want to delegate to a third party some access, controlled access to resources that. We don't want everyone to get to. They're 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 protected in a way that gives us, for example, the ability to revoke that that access at some later time, and also to control it. 
I saw in in some of the the pages that talk about this, they talk about the valet key that some higher end cars have, where you know the 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 main car key is able to do everything with the car, but the valet key you're 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 able to start the engine, but for example, not unlock the the glove compartment uh, and the trunk. And in fact, I didn't know this, but apparently there's like a limited distance you can drive. With the valet key, I, I, I didn't know that either. I have one. I, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean it that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah, Although, how far should he have to drive it? You'd hate for him to conk out, you know, a couple yeah, of miles it's, away. It's scary, you know, the <laughs> yeah. idea that the car might just decide, well, okay, you've driven me too far on my valet key. I mean, I don't know what it does, but anyway, I did run across that. I thought, well, I didn't realize there was that limitation. Yeah. But anyway, so a valet key is is in, in sort of an analogous way of saying that this is something you could do limited things with. So, for example, in the Bitly case, where I was using Bitly to to shorten links and post on my behalf through my Twitter account, well, that's all it can do. So it's able it's able to do that but it's not able to do all the other things that that I can do as you know as the fully credentialed, fully authenticated owner of this account. So, so a a service provider, this the so called server, it says it's going to support OAuth. Oh, what I was saying was that prior to OAuth, we still had these needs, but there wasn't a single standard for doing it. So. You know, people, you know, Facebook had some need for for automated access. So they just invented a random protocol that was theirs. And, you know, and various sites would create their own. And the problem was from a from a developer standpoint, there were no libraries for doing this. It required, you know, constant code to be written all the time. And the, 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 the client sites, especially if they wanted to offer their services to multiple providers they'd have to individually support what other you know i mean the like the arbitrary you know invented their protocol that each different service was offering in order to allow some sort of you know th- this delegated access to their protected resources so so the dream and the goal of oauth was let's all agree on a single standard for all the reasons that you know, doing so makes sense. With just, we're going to solve this problem once. We're going to we're going to all bear down and focus on it and solve it right. Solve it in a way that 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 provides a solution for everyone's needs, and then we're done. You know, and and we're solving something that's really important for the net. So, so the service provider says, okay, we're we're going to support OAuth. It also needs to make available to developers the so-called endpoint URLs. That is the, the, the URLs, the web links, where, where, it, where its OAuth API is accessible. There's, been, there's some talk in the current 2.0 spec, um, that is the OAuth 2.0 spec, of an OAuth discoverability where where discovering when a service supports OAuth and discovering what these URLs are would be automatic. But apparently that doesn't exist yet. This is all finally now in the hands of the IETF. So it's sort of, it, again, it's it's had a spotty pass. There was a 1.0 
and that had actually some security flaws in it. And then, then there was a, a 1.0A, and then when it wasn't really being well adopted, there were people who were complaining that the spec wasn't really clear, that they were having problems getting their OAuth to interface with somebody else's. Um, there were some ambiguities that kept it from working. Error codes that were sent back didn't really explain what the service had a problem with. It just said oh, it didn't work. And so it was. And so then, then there were people saying, "Well, we don't want to try to sign these um, uh, requests because uh, signing is hard. So we're just we're going to rely on SSL to provide the security wrapper." for the protocol and you know and then people who actually understood security said no 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 you can't do that so there was there's been a just sort of this evolution of this protocol going back and forth with people tugging it in different directions there's something called OAuth wrap w-r-a-p for a while which ended up being what OAuth 2 was based on so so it's you know over the Last four years, this thing has has had a bunch of ups and downs. But fundamentally, the protocol works as follows: the um, say that um, I'll, I'll, I'll use the the Bitly example uh, that I talked about at the beginning. I'm over at Bitly now. Bitly, a client of Twitter, has to have identified itself before. That is, so sort of like. When it, when it's going to set itself up as an OAuth client of Twitter, the Bitly owners, the owners of the Bitly site, send email to the Twitter folks and say, hey, we want to be a client of OAuth, so send us some credentials. So the, the Twitter folks just sort of make up what looks like a really good you know, a really good password. It's just a bunch of random characters and numbers. Two of them, actually. There's a there's one that's used to identify the um, client. And then there's a secret token, which is never put on the wire. It's never sent out. It's used as, as, a, as a signing key, which that client uses to sign its communications with the server to prove that it is who it says it is so that so that the server is able to verify the signature it's basically just a digital signature as we've talked about many times in the past so so ahead of time a a, a site like bitly or anyone that wants to be a client has to have had a relationship has to have established a relationship to get these these permanent credentials which identify it statically, permanently, to the server. So I'm over at Bitly, and Bitly says, hey, um, I'd like to, uh, to uh, act on your behalf to be able to post um, compressed link tweets to your Twitter account. So if, that, if that's good for you, um, we need to authorize me to do that, says Bitly. So I say, yes, I say, that's what I want to do. So Bitly redirects my browser to the site that is going to be serving this content. That is where 
the, the site that knows me that I have a, a, a an authenticated relationship with. Part of that redirection is a it, in that in, in that in that redirecting URL essentially in the it, it, it can be um, headers in the um, HTTP uh, request for this author this authentication page over on Twitter in this example. It can be strung on the end of the URL, or it can be in the in the body of the um, request. The way post uh, posted data is sent to the server, one way or another, a bunch of information is provided by Bitly, this client, over to the server. Among them are, for example, this. This very random-looking, sort of pseudo-random-looking string of numbers and letters, which is the, the the this client identifier, which identifies to Twitter who who it is that is requesting authentication. In this case, Bitly, um, and then a a, a timestamp and. Um, a number of other sort of like one-time things. There's a so-called nonce, a of a, a one-time usage string, and also the URL, which which the the Bitly URL, which Bitly wants the user to be sent back to once they have authenticated. So so the user comes to Twitter with their browser. And all this additional information, which provides a digitally signed request from Bitly for, essentially, it's asking for um, uh, authentication. Now, behind the scenes, Bitly has, has also had a communication with the server getting temporary credentials. Basically, it says, I want to open a session. I, I have a user here at my site, Bitly that wants to authenticate. So we're, um, I'm going to send them to you in a minute. Give me a temporary credential sort of for this transaction. So those are also sent. So Bitly's credential along with this temporary credential are sent over to, you know, with the user to, to Twitter. So Twitter has everything it needs in order to understand what it is that, is being asked of it. For example, it knows about Bitly because they have established a relationship before. It sees this temporary credential that it issued probably moments before. It's like, okay, yep, um, here's this guy coming back. We, we've been expecting him. Um, it knows who the user is, assuming that they're still logged in to Twitter. If not, the user would need to authenticate with Twitter in order to say, yes, this is really me. Um, who wants to provide um, this permission. And so if all of those criteria um, are met, if, if the, if the you know, oh, and, and Twitter will also say, hey, we know about Bitly, here's their logo, um, here's the level of, auth of authentication we want to provide, and it could be whatever's been negotiated. It could be full access to Twitter so that, you're, so that it's able to pull and read and change settings. It might just be, um, you know, like posting-only access. It can be whatever level of granularity makes sense for that service to be issued by Twitter. 
the user agrees and says, yes, this is what I want to do. So, so using the URL that, that, for example, in this case, Bitly provided, Twitter sends the user and their browser back to Bitly with an additional token, which is the authentication. So that, that goes back to Bitly, who then receives that as the data in the returning request that the user's browser has made to Bitly in order to go back there. Bitly has now the temporary credential that was first issued. It also has the the um, authorized credential, which the user has just received from Twitter, having um, having authenticated with Twitter and agreed and brought back to Bitly. So Bitly then um, makes one final contact to Twitter saying, here's everything I've collected. Here's the temporary credential. Here's the authentication, which I've just received back from the user. Please now issue me permanent formal credentials on the user's behalf that I'm going to use from now on. And so there's a web server to web server interchange. Um, finally, behind the scenes, Bitly gets that credential and then stores it with the account that it's established with the user, which then in the future permits it to make the um, agreed upon requests on the user's behalf. Are you? <laughs> I got it. I followed every step of that. Yep. Every yep. step of the way. No, no. But it's a, t it's a token system. Yes. Yes. Exchanging it is a, tokens you, instead of passwords. Yes. You're basically, you're, you're exchanging tokens and the, the client ends up with the credential that then allows it to make um, queries, you know, API queries to the Twitter API on the user's behalf. The, the, the thing that's nice about this is that much as I did when I went over and looked at my at my connections, I think it's called connections under Twitter. Here, here, here are all the different applications which I have one time or another done that with. I have permitted them to access Twitter on my behalf. And exactly as you said earlier, Leo, what Twitter did recently, which is really what brought this to my attention, mm -hmm. is they shut down their traditional username and password right. based so-called basic authentication and they said i mean and they, they've had the oauth there for like more than a year so there's been plenty of time for applications to switch over and start using it and they said no more username and password we're tightening things down we're gonna do it the right way from now on now here's the problem is what i've just described really works well the but there's there's a couple of reasons it works well one is that when i'm dealing with one website that wants access to another the websites are talking to each other as needed behind the scenes so for example i never there's no way for me to have access to the the client's 
secret key, which it uses to sign the conversation, these packets of information going back and forth. The beauty of that is that that's its secret key, which absolutely verifies and validates its identity to the server. You know, all I'm doing with my browser as we bounce from one site to the other is we're just shuttling, we're just sort of carrying the information back and forth that has been that has been signed by these two parties. And, and the beauty is the user is sort of the, the shuttling mechanism bet- from one site to the other, providing the authentication and then, then bringing it back. So it's that aspect of it is very elegant. Okay, so here's the problem is, and, and, and this came up, this, this was the main thrust of this Ars Technica um, attack, which is really what it amounts to, by, by this Ryan Paul. He's a, a, a FOSS developer, free and open source software developer, who has a Twitter client. And this OAuth technology is... It begins to fail when you move it from the scenario I just painted to websites where instead you want applications on the desktop because the lesson all of our Security Now listeners know very well is that nothing on the desktop can be protected. That is, it's very much like, you know, we've talked about how you fundamentally cannot keep um, DVDs encrypted because the DVD player in the end user's living room has to be able to, de- to decrypt them. In fact, Leo, you may have picked up on the news that HDMI, yeah. the master HDMI key. HD- apparent- HDCP, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, HDCP has leaked out on the internet. It hasn't been confirmed yet, but, you know, if so, it means that, you know, th- that that, you know, Blu-ray encryption is in bad shape mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. So, so the problem is, we 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 know that you we, that it's impossible for applications to keep secrets. Well, it's even more impossible for open source applications to keep secrets because so so here's the problem: is something like Seismic or you know uh, Twitterific or TweetDeck, any of these things that are running on the desktop. What what we're saying is that for them to use OAuth means that that they have to have their their token and they have to digitally sign their transactions with this signature um, with their secret their their shared secret key. Except that it's got to be in the application. It's got to be there on the desktop. Though. So even though we're wanting to allow this third-party application access on our behalf, and although it seems like a very similar thing, the fact that it's running on the desktop fundamentally breaks this model. And so, so the problem is Twitter has formally said, Twitter has said that if some application starts spamming Twitter accounts behind their users' backs, that application's 
OAuth credentials will be suspended. Isn't that beautiful? Well, it's a nice idea. Yeah, because it's just you can you have a kill switch. You have a kill switch. The problem is these applications can be reverse engineered. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, what Twitter has said is, well, developers, even of open source software, need to do need, need to go to any reasonable measures to hide the, the, the so-called consumer key and consumer secret. That's this client key and client secret from exposure. <laughs> well, this Ryan Paul, who, who writes for Ars Technica, was miffed at this whole thing because, you know, the, the, I, the, the problem would be he's got a Twitter client and he's an open source guy. This is a Linux client. He's an open source guy and he receives this key and secret from Twitter. Well, in the first place, it's fundamentally antithetical to his ethic of an open source guy to have anything that needs to be kept secret. But it's open source, so arguably it can't be. So out of curiosity, he took Twitter's own Android client, which Twitter produces for the Android platform, just did a string search through the executable and found consumer key colon 3NV USOBZNX6U4V. And then he, he put in his article XXXXXX. You didn't want to publish it. Right. And similarly, the consumer secret. Same thing. Here's the secret shared key which which Android's app uses in order to sign its work. And again, he left the last six digits as X's because he didn't want to um, expose it. On the other hand, everyone now knows that that this thing is is available by doing a string search in the clear. In the clear. So here's so here's the dilemma. Obviously, Twitter's Android client is authorized to do things on behalf of the user. So. All a bad guy has to do is create an evil client that looks the same as the Android client, but sends spam behind people's backs oh, wow. and uses the same key and the same secret, and Twitter cannot tell the difference. Oh, that's so, not good. No. And so as soon so as... There's no, there's no certificate authority or anything like that. There's no way of verifying... Well, here's the problem is th 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 there's a fundamental breakage in the model when we go from a web-based client to a desktop right. client. And that's that's where this thing falls down. I see. So there are so, certificates on the web that that prevent this. Sure. Yeah, well and 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 in 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 the web model, remember, if I'm for example using Bitly, I have no access right. to its secret. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's right. Bitly has it, but not me. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, on its it. server, and it, si it uses it, it to sign things. Right. But if, but if I have a desktop client that must use the secret to sign something, I can watch it do so. 
I can debug it. I can reverse engineer it. I can go, oh, look, it's signing what's it, what it's about to send. There's the, there's the signing key. Well, maybe it would be better if these clients went to the web to get the key, you know, and did a three, to get a triangular thing. Or I had I had exactly the same thought. Yeah, um, that's not in the model at this point, unfortunately. And so, and so, so just to finish this thought, once the evil client starts mm-hmm. using the the Twitter Android client key and and shared secret, Twitter has no choice but to disavow that client. It has to yep. disable that client, which breaks every Android client which has been downloaded and forces all the users to update their client. Right. So, I mean, it's a, fun, it's a fundamentally broken thing because, unfortunately, this is not a problem we can solve. I mean, there, there isn't, there isn't, you have to, you, we have to think through like, a, like adding another leg to this. Like if this, if the client went to a web server to have it do something, I don't, I still don't see how an evil client couldn't do exactly the same right. thing. Right. It, it's, it's the, it's the problem of having complete access to the client running on the desktop. It's, so, it's just it's like the analog hole. It's just a flaw with, with clients, with, with, whether it's DVD players or yes. uh, Twitter clients. It's just a flaw. Yes. You have to have the key. Yes, you have to have the key. And if you can have it, then everybody else can too. And even if you encrypt the key in the core code, I mean, obviously this is really bad because it's plain text searchable string. But even if you encrypted it, you have you to could, decrypt it and store it in memory at some point. Yes, exactly. You have to have it. At, you have to access it in order to use it. And in the act of accessing it, you know, we know how clever hackers are. They, yeah. they'll, they're just going to chew into this. I mean, now that it's become a big issue, um, th- th- this was something that that hit the the uh, the news about ten days ago. Was where I first saw this posted in Ars Technica, and I thought, okay, I got We got to talk about this. So, the good news is for web-based solutions where the client is not on your desktop, but is like Bitly or is like any of these web-based systems, OAuth is a beautiful solution. It's at version 2.0. It's um, there now, we're beginning to see libraries which allow programmers, you know, using Python and Ruby and so forth, you know, standard toolkits. Um, There are libraries that do all the heavy lifting, perform the crypto, do the work that's necessary. And so this kind of delegation among online services makes sense and works. The problem is, I mean, I, maybe it's better than nothing on the desktop. I mean, I'd, I'd, I, I don't want to give these clients my username and password. I mean, it, uh, just that's just a bad idea. So the fact that we sort of have a solution is better than none. I would argue, I guess, that there ought to be no attempt to identify a client by using a key and a secret, which is fundamentally vulnerable as, as it is if it's on the desktop. We ought to just say, look, that's not something that OAuth is able to do, um, even though it's, it's trying to. And that's sort of where it has falls down. If we don't ask it to do that, if we don't make assumptions that it can that is, if and then then Twitter has a problem because there isn't a means for Twitter to shut something down 
that goes awry. On the other hand, there's no good way for it to do that. It's just, it's, you know, it's them wanting to do something they really can't do, unfortunately. Yeah. Gosh, I hope this isn't fatally wounded. I mean, uh, we really need it to work. But wouldn't any system be similarly uh, hobbled? Yes. Yeah. I mean, the nature of it. Yes, you, 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 there, is, there is no way to protect this on the desktop. The only way to protect it is in web-based systems where, where there, there is a piece that you cannot get to. You cannot get to the server. All you're seeing is what the server wants to show you. So that, provi- that provides the integrity that OAuth was originally designed to provide. It's when they extended it into this desktop model that's like, uh, wow, this is a bad idea. Yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. So we do have a protocol, OAuth, which works beautifully and, and very seamlessly. I mean, just I, I loved when I got bounced over to Twitter. I thought, wow, this is the way it should be because I'm not telling Bitly about anything about me. I'm saying to Twitter, this is me. And I want, I want you to allow those guys to do the following things. And I've got a list of, of those things that I've given permission to. And underneath each one, it says revoke, revoke, revoke. So at any time I want to, I can click on those and remove them from the permissions list. And they're no longer able to act on my behalf. You know, this works. Yeah. When it's web-based, it works. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's got problems when, when it's client, when it's desktop-based. Almost seems like we should have made a different way of doing it for clients and just made it required that it's the web only. Then we'd have yeah. at least a working web system. Well, and one thing you could do would be to, you know, users themselves could say, okay, mm. I'm not going to use a desktop client. There I'm going to use, you know, web-based clients because, you know, I know that they're going to be robust against these kinds of threats. Right. Really uh, great stuff, um, as always. I'm glad you uh, tackled this one. Makes me wonder if I sh- now the new Twitter page. You don't really need a desktop client anymore, so maybe I'll just use the new Twitter page. Yeah, and avoid that. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. That's the place you can get Spinrite, his uh, hard drive recovery and maintenance utility. It's fantastic. Also, lots of free stuff at grc.com, uh, including Shields Up and uh, all of his free uh, security programs, and this show. 64 kilobit version for those with lots of bandwidth, 16 kilobit version for those without, transcriptions for those who like to read as well as listen, show notes too. Uh, we also have all of that at uh, twit.tv slash sn, and our uh, twit wiki now contains all the show notes as we go along. I've been putting them in there, which is great, and we have some nice people, who volunteers who go in and clean it up because I just dump it in there, and they, they format it all out, wiki.twit.tv. We do this show live at live.twit.tv. Uh, every uh, Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, 1800 UTC, live.twit.tv, so you can follow along and be in the chat room while we do it live. It's always great. Uh, what else? I guess uh, next week a Q&A, so if you've got questions yep. for Steve or thoughts about this or any other topic in security, go to grc.com slash feedback. Pose the question, and we'll use about 10 of them next week. Steve, have a great week. Thanks, Leo. It's great talking to you. Talk to you next week. See you next time on Security Now. Security Now.